0: Uh, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to take a break from Proverbs and I want to preach a sermon on Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 and I confess that I, um, this has been somewhat burning with me and I've pressed it aside and so then under conviction in the service, I'm, I feel like it's uh, I, I don't need to push away from it. So we're going to we're going to dive in here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Or, the righteous shall live by faith. On the road to persecute Christians, the Apostle Paul was overwhelmed by the light of the Gospel. Literally the light of the Gospel. Literally the light. He's on the road, you remember in Acts chapter 9, to go and persecute the church. To destroy This movement that had been started by this itinerant teacher, Jesus Christ, and these 12 now followers of Christ who have gone out into Jerusalem and into Judea and they are preaching the gospel. And it's turning the Jewish world upside down. And Paul, sent with papers from the Jewish officials, is going to persecute Christians. Uh, We know what that means, right? He had just given us first row events of what it means to persecute a Christian. He had presided over the death of Stephen. Why did he kill Stephen? Because Stephen dared stand at the Sanhedrin and tell them, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And for that, and for the added word, not only to the Jews, But to the Gentiles, for that, he was stoned. And at the feet of one named Saul of Tarsus were laid the cloaks of those who picked up stones to kill the first martyr in the movement of Christ. Or the second. Christ had been killed, and now Stephen. Paul, Saul at that time, on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, To literally kill those who would confess Christ was overwhelmed with the light of the gospel. He later writes about it, I think, in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, he gives this description. Moses went up on the mountain, and he was face to face with God, and the glory of God overwhelmed him to the point that it resided in him and it shone forth in great light. And the people said, Veil your face, right? You're, you're, you're glowing with the glory of God. Veil yourself. And Paul said, the one who works in this age has veiled the eyes of those who claim to be his followers. The Jews. He has clothed their eyes. He has cloaked it with a veil. And they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God, that is in the face of who? Jesus Christ. The one who spoke in the darkness, light from the very beginning. That's a personal testimony of Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, he came face to face with what Moses saw on the mountain. And the result for for Paul was blindness. You remember? Scales formed over his eyes because of this burst of light that he saw. And, And the result of that was three years in the wilderness being transformed by Jesus Christ's personal teaching, as he tells us in Galatians. And out of that time, those three years, we get distilled for us in the book of Romans a letter... Written to a church that deals with one verse in the Old Testament. And you think I exposit Scripture at length. Paul wrote 16 chapters on one verse. One verse. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. Now, about 1,500 years later, there was another man. He was very religious, raised in a religious family. He was traveling on a road one afternoon. It got near dark and he was caught in a thunderstorm. Lightning began to strike. And out of fear, he laid to the ground, prostrate before the Lord, and cried out to the saint of minors. In the Catholic church, you know, you have saints for everything. Right? We can't all be saints, but we can create saints when we need them. And the Protestants believe we're all saints. right? But he cried out to the saint and he said to her, If I live, I will give my life to serving God. Now that's the kind of prayer you prayed and I prayed right, growing up. Oh God, if you let me pass this trigonometry exam. I swear to you, I will live for you. Right. I prayed that prayer. You prayed that prayer. Don't let this girl break up with me because if she does my life, Lynn, if you'll just let her stay with me, I promise I will do whatever you call me to do. I will go to the deepest, darkest jungles with the light of your gospel. That's the kind of prayer it was. He was fearful. He was scared. And so one Martin Luther left that trail and went home and told his daddy, I can't do what you've plotted out for my life. I've got to go be a monk. Now, that's not the words that a father looks forward to. The life of a monk in the the late 1400s, early 1500s. It's a life of poverty. It's a life away from the family. It's a life that will be no public good, his dad said. You're going to throw your life away, son. So he went anyway, and he was a brilliant mind, and he began to study the Psalms. For his lectures. And he was overwhelmed by one thing. God requires righteousness. Perfection. Law keeping. And I can't do it. Now, he, he tried. And he said, Let's don't make any mistakes about it. His answer was not. Well I tell you what. Well, I can't do this anyway. Let's just go live and let live. That wasn't his answer. Luther went the other way. He began to starve Himself. He began to beat Himself. He began to take on Himself the burdens of His sins, so to speak. He began to try to pay for it Himself. And then God put Him in touch with Romans 1, 16 and 17. The just shall live by faith. Or the ones who live by faith shall live. The ones who live by faith shall live. All of Paul's early life was given to works, earning his righteousness. All of Luther's early life was given to works, earning righteousness. And they both were confronted with something powerful that changed them. Now, that's, those are two glorious examples. Let me give you my personal example. And I can do this. I have witnesses to this. They're here. <clears throat> For 19 years, I lived a life that outwardly was righteous. I said the right things. Uh, Derek, one of my good friends, he's in here. Derek said last night, going to do? They, he asked, like, what are we doing Sunday? And They said, we're going to hear Carl and preach. He said, we've been listening to him preach since the seventh grade, you know. I was living this life on the outside. I was doing the right things. I was everybody's, you know, every adult's poster child for this is what you need to be. And my classmates were left with a very different impression, I'm sure, of who I was. Because inside of me was this desire to earn righteousness. To be good. To follow the rules. To do the right thing. And I never could quite live up to that. At 19. Sitting in my dorm. With the book of Ephesians open. I read my personal story. You are dead in your trespasses. You are under the wrath of God. You deserve nothing but hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us in Christ, has saved us, not by our righteousness, but by the power of the good news of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself, it is a gift from God. Oh, the joy that breaks on a 19-year-old legalist's heart when he reads, it's a gift you can't earn. Why am I telling you these three similar stories? Because I believe there are many of you here who are still trying to earn your place with God. And I want to say to you, you will never earn it. You will never be accepted on those terms. You will never be good enough. You will wear yourself out. You will die dismayed unless you bow the knee. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time looking, expositing these two verses right here. Paul says, I am not ashamed. That word ashamed. It means that he didn't duck his head. He didn't hide his face. He didn't Try to deny the gospel. That word gospel can be broken down two ways. It's good news. What makes it good? You might ask. Why is it good news? Well, if you look at verse 18 in chapter 1, you will see why. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of who? Of men. The general word men is used because it's all of us. God's wrath is revealed against our ungodliness. Is there anyone here today who would say, I'm I'm perfect. I've never sinned. Well, maybe there's somebody here who would venture to say, I've never intentionally sinned. Anybody? You know, in other words, I did some things on accident. I got caught up in it. But it really wasn't me. Is there anybody that wants to stand there? I don't see any hands. Notice the one behind the pulpit is not raising either. Why? Because we are all ungodly. Chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of Romans wear us out with the fact that we are sinners. Not just the Gentiles, but chapter 2 says the Jews and chapter 3 says we are all ungodly, every one of us, for all have sinned and do what? Fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. You can't earn something that requires you to be something that you can't be. That's the definition of sin. How will you earn the glory of God? How will you earn a position with Him? How will you? You must be like Him. You must be glorious like Him. I'm not then in that confession, what you're saying is, I'm in bad trouble. Why? Because chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness of men. The wrath of God. Truly, what Paul is saying, brothers, all of the Old Testament is put in place to show us that we are sinners. And there's only one hope. That's the Old Testament. Too many of us Christians run to the New Testament and run to the good news. And the lost guy's sitting there saying, what's so good about this? Because, see, we've avoided hell and wrath and sin and ungodliness. We've avoided, talking about, let's not talk about that. That's uncomfortable. Or we might hurt somebody's feelings They might not like us anymore. They might not like our message anymore. They might not come to a place like this and assemble and listen to you preach if you preach about ungodliness or about hell. But see, if you don't tell the lost man he's lost, he'll never be found. If you don't tell the lost man he's dead, he'll never be made alive. If you don't tell him he is a sinner, he will never know what it means to come into the grace of and the goodness of God. What is so good about this is the fact that we are deserving of God's wrath. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I want to ask a different question. I asked you, who in here is sinless? Who in here is accepted by God based on your merit? Now, I want to ask you this. And you can, I know it looks a little Pentecostal. It's okay. It's okay. We taught about Pentecostalism at 9 o'clock. If you missed it, we're not a Pentecostal church, but therefore we stand in the middle because we're not dead, nor are we Pentecostal. We're just kind of in the middle. We get shot. Okay, so you can raise your hand. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm dead serious. Who in here stands before God forgiven because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Yes. 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 That is the good in the news. He is our righteousness. We deserve hell, and we get heaven. We deserve separation, and we get intimacy. We deserve to be called enemies, and we've been called sons and daughters of God through the Spirit that is within us. If you can't get Pentecostal happy about that, then you might not know Him. The good is that Jesus is our righteousness. The wages of my life for 19 years was death, but the gift of God was Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that when a man might even dare die for a good person, but Christ exhibited His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the good in the news. That's it, the Christian. Don't come before the throne of God holding on to anything in your life. Come with open hands. Nothing to your throne I bring. Nothing. Not one good thing do I bring. Only to Jesus Christ. I cling. Hold on to the only good in the news. Jesus Christ. That's what I'm telling you. On Reformation Sunday, 2012, sinner, lost man, you need Jesus. I'm not ashamed to tell you that. I'm not going to hide from it. It's the good, but there's news. Listen, Christian In this one word, gospel, we get both sides of our lives. We came into the good, and now it's our news to tell. Paul doesn't stop in Romans by saying, He saved you by grace. He died for you when you were ungodly. He goes on to say, You are an ambassador of this message. In 2 Corinthians 5, he calls us just that. Ambassadors. What do ambassadors do? They tell the news of the king. That's what ambassadors do. They don't have a message about who they are. They have a message about who their king is. Ambassadors in the ancient world in Paul's day used to run before a conquering army with negotiated terms. The king's coming. Submit and live. Bow your knee now and live. Stand against him and he will crush you. The news that we have to give to the world is that Jesus Christ is coming. And when you stand before Him, if you stand in your own merit, your own works, He will crush you with the wrath of God. But if you submit now, if you bow the knee now, Philippians 2 2 tells us, if we will bow the knee before Him, we will be exalted with Him. That's the news, and we have to tell it. We have to be ambassadors. We have to be out there. So that's what Paul is. He says, I'm not ashamed, basically. I'm not scared. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed to stand with the news that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And by the way, I'm going to tell that news. Why am I going to tell the news? That may be your question this morning. Why should I tell anybody about it? I mean, yes, it's done good things for me, but why should I tell anybody? Look what it says. For it... What is it? The gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. Why do we proclaim the good news? Because it is the power of God. I am not the power of God. This church is not the power of God. God's gospel is the power that saves sinners. It is not explosive power in the sense of dynamite. That's mistakes often made here because of the etymology of this word in the Greek. When it continues through time, it becomes the word for dynamite. And that is good. It is that powerful. But that gives us a wrong impression because what we think of in dynamite is what? Everything gets blown up. There's nothing good that comes from dynamite. It's that kind of power for reconstruction. The power, the gospel is powerful to save you. In other words, there's no power inside of you that can save you. It's an external power that saves you. Saves you. Whose power? It's God's power. That's what the text says. For the gospel is the power of who? God. God. God is omnipotent. He is powerful. He can do anything, but He has put His power into the gospel so that it saves. The powerful gospel saves. Not me, not you, not this church, the gospel. So, I'm not ashamed to preach the good news of Jesus Christ Because the gospel is the power of God to save. One of the main reasons you're not telling your neighbors, friends, loved ones about the gospel is you're scared of what they will think of you. Paul didn't even think about that. He never thought about it. How do I know? Because it says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because the gospel, the good news, is the power of God unto salvation. What he's saying there is, it's not dependent on me. Some of you are so scared of rejection. I was in a coffee shop. Y'all know I like to drink coffee? (laughs) I was in a coffee shop last week. The week before, I'm sorry, it was the week before. And I had an appointment, and I like to look hip. So, you know, at work, sometimes I like to look hip, so I meet at a coffee shop instead of coming to my office. It's just the thing, you know. So this guy's coming to meet me at the coffee shop. We're going to drink a cup of coffee and talk about the Lord. And <clears throat> the little girl comes out to give me my coffee. And she had a shirt on that really should have, you know, kind of caught my eye. It had a message on it that should have caught my eye immediately. And it could have led to a gospel conversation. And in my mind, it happened. Y'all have ever been there? Like you've played out this whole conversation of sharing the gospel with somebody. I mean, it was so clear to me that it happened that I could have called one of you and said with a straight face, man, I had this great experience. There was this girl. She came and dropped my coffee on the table and she had on this shirt and it led into this great witnessing opportunity and I could tell you all about it. you say, how'd it go? Well, I didn't actually do it. I didn't actually do it. I, in the moment, I was afraid. I was scared. If, why were you scared, Carlton? I didn't know how she'd respond. See, I go in that coffee shop a lot. And she's in there a lot. What if she thinks I'm an idiot? What if she thinks I'm a zealot? What if she thinks I'm... You've been there? Paul wasn't there. Not when he wrote Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed to tell people of the gospel because it is the power of God and the salvation. I'm not worried about rejection because if they reject it, they're rejecting God, not me. I am so self-centered that I really think it's about me. And that keeps me from sharing the gospel. I wish I could give you this pretty analogy of me sharing the gospel with that girl, but I just didn't do it. And partly it was because I did not believe the verse I'm preaching to you. Really in my heart, at that moment, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that it was more about God and His glory than it was about me. I didn't believe that in that moment it was about the power of God to save a sinner. I believed it was more about my reputation and who I am. So, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it was the power of God unto salvation. To who? Who can be saved? So here we have a sinner. I've already described it to you. You may be self-righteous. You may not be religious at all. You may be here because someone made you come here. You could be in any condition right now, but let me tell you, if you're not in Christ, you are bound for hell. Now don't say that flippantly. I've been where you are. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, not just physical, but spiritual. You are bound for that right now. If you're outside of Christ. The good news, I've told it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect and sinless life. He died a death that we could not die. In our place, condemned, Jesus stood. Why? So that we might be saved. So that Peter says He might carry us to God. So that He might reconcile us to God in Romans 5. So that He might give us the Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, in Romans eight. That's why he died to save sinners like me, like you. You're a sinner here this morning. Who can be saved? What does the next verse say? What's well, the next part of the verse? Everyone who believes. Now, I, wanna, I don't do this a lot, but I get accused of being a Calvinist. I am, because I believe that's the most faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing known as Calvinism. I just think it's biblical theology. Basically, I do believe that God is sovereign in salvation. I do believe God saves the elect. I do believe He does that through His work, not mine. I believe that. But don't make a mistake that's often made. In my confession, I'm not saying that I don't believe this verse everyone who believes it's the power of god unto salvation for who everyone who believes i don't know who the everyone is only god does so you're sitting in here listening and you say i resonate with this i am a sinner i believe jesus is the christ i see what he's saying i've never understood that before it's making perfect sense to me now my heart is convicted What do I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't use God's sovereignty as a reason to go to hell, sinner. Don't say, well, he might not have chosen me. Believe. Believe. Jesus said, Come to me, all ye who are weary. Who? All who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who comes into the light of this, light of the gospel, he's the light of the world. He brings you out of darkness into light. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, well, what do I do? You can't do it. Only God can. But at the end, what did he say? I'll be lifted up from the earth, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall be saved. Paul and Jesus agree completely. Who can be saved? Everyone who believes. Everyone. I don't narrow the door by my theology. I don't say some are in, some aren't. It's not the playground where we pick you know, teams. That's not what we're doing here. When we confess that Jesus Christ is sovereign in salvation, what we're confessing is that He's not bound by my weakness. He can save anyone. He will save all who believe. So He preaches this gospel message to everyone, knowing that everyone who believes will be saved by Jews and Greeks. Why is it powerful to save? What are we heralding? What are we preaching? The good news. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. How does it save? For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that that verse is explained for us. Turn to Romans 3. We're drawing to a close. What's so powerful about the gospel? What, What is it that's so important about today? Why do we care about the Reformation? Why should we care? 500, almost 500 years later, why does it still matter? Because the church at the time of Luther was telling people that you're made right by God with God by your work and the work of Christ. Not simply by your work, but by the work of Christ plus your works. You can earn favor with God. It's merited grace. That's a strange concept. So strange nobody else in the world has ever believed that. Think about the words, grace and merited. What does grace mean? Gaining that which you cannot earn. What does merit mean? Earning that which you can't earn. How can you merit grace? How can you ever do anything that's good enough to get what you can't earn? So the church was teaching this. And Luther stood up against it. and said, you can't earn it. It's a gift. He was kicked out of the church. And then he, through God's work in his life and many others, known as the Reformers, we have the Protestant Church. They hung their hat on this simple truth that the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verse 21, I want to explain that phrase to you. I want to let Paul explain to you what he means when he says the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 21, but now, after all this teaching about the fallenness and sinfulness of man, verse 21, but, transition, all this ugliness is happening, all this sin is happening, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God is made obvious apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is, Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now that's almost identical to what he said in verse 17, right? You see, verse 17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. A satisfactory sacrifice. He satisfied the wrath of God by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the gospel, what we are believing is that God did everything necessary for our salvation in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a historical event. It didn't happen when I was 19. It happened when Christ died at the cross. Furthermore, what happened at the cross was not a bloody abusive event, but rather the most glorious event of all of history. At the cross, Jesus Christ took His account of righteousness and placed it on the believer. And at the cross, He received our debt, our sin, our wrath-deserving actions. He took them on Himself. He transferred to us the righteousness of God And He took from us our sinfulness. He didn't ask my permission for that. Thank God He didn't. I wasn't even alive yet. I couldn't have had anything to do with it. You see the beauty of this? God did everything necessary for salvation through His Son. How can I be saved? Believe in it and you will be saved. What does it mean to believe? Jesus calls it treasuring in Matthew 13. Treasure Jesus Christ above everything else. How do I treasure Him? Literally, see yourself as bankrupt. Not possessing anything which would please God. You cannot be saved if you think there is anything in you that pleases God. If you come to God and say, I'm 99.9% awful, God, but this 0.1% is pretty good. God will not accept you. You must come to Him and say, I'm 100%. 100%. Fallen, sinful, broken, dead, blind, imprisoned by my sin." bankrupt and you must confess that's the other side of faith confess that Jesus Christ is 100 percent righteous that's what believing is it's not a set of facts necessarily mental uh, saying I know Jesus I know God I know this I know that. that's not enough It must come to the very heart of who you are. It must transfer to the very heart of who you are. I am 100% bankrupt. There is nothing good in me. If it was dependent on me, I would bust hell wide open. But Jesus Christ is righteous. And it's His righteousness which has been transferred to me. You must believe it. And I do, I, by the grace of God, believe what I'm preaching to you, what I've said to you this morning. As I close, I just want to say that He says at the end here Habakkuk 2 4, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. For 19 years, the better part of 19 years, I lived trying to be righteous. And I was, by worldly standards, a pretty good guy. But at 19, what switched, what changed, what happened, was I stopped trying to be righteous and began to live by faith in the only righteous one. And that is all the world of difference. Some of you in here are right where I am today. As you hear this message, you're just being reconfirmed in what you already believe. You're saying, that's it. I believe that. I I trust only in the righteousness of God. Some of you are here saying, I've been doing nothing but earning, trying to earn God's favor. It's driving me crazy. Pastor, if, if the world could see what's going on in my own heart right now, the whirlwind of confusion and hurt and bitterness and depression that's going on in my own life, I can't earn You're tired. You say, I can't earn it. Then I would say to you, stop trying. Let yourself come to the point of saying, I am bankrupt before God. And He is my righteousness. I am so certain of this that I can say to you confidently, if God withdrew His Son today, I would bust hell wide open. If I get to the the throne of God on the last day, and Christ is not sufficient for salvation, then I will go to hell. There is nothing I have done before, during, or since my personal salvation that convinces me of anything else. If Christ is not enough, I have no hope. So sinner, lost guy, in the turmoil, believe, lay down your life and take up Christ's righteousness by faith. and you will be saved. I mean, that's the surest statement in all the world. You will be saved. If your faith is in Christ, you will be saved. I want to close the preaching with just a prayer, and then I want us to sing the doxology. I want us to sing to God